Hey there, it's Luke here. Um, just before we jump into the episode, I wanted to give you guys a little bit of a backstory on this conversation. So Megan and I recorded this conversation actually back in April of 2021, kind of right in the middle of, you know, the most uncertain time of the pandemic. During the conversation, we do take a few moments to talk about, you know, what's been happening and how it's been affecting us. And what really inspired this conversation was the fact that here in Vancouver, we were experiencing an extreme overdose crisis. And at one moment, there is more people dying to overdose than to COVID. I also reached out because uh, recently around this time, uh, Demi Lovato actually released her documentary called Dancing with the Devil. And I really wanted to talk to someone about all the feelings that I was going through. Honestly, I had no idea that this conversation was going to be so powerful and impactful to me. Yeah, it's kind of crazy that I'm releasing it today. I should also give a little warning that, yeah, we do talk about some hard things, some really hard things, and um, I think it's responsible of me to put a little trigger warning before this episode. I do, however, want to take a wholehearted moment to just thank Megan for being willing to have this conversation with me and to take a risk with me, and honestly, for just teaching me so much. So without further ado, here's the conversation. Hey there, Brambling. How's it going? It's Uncle Luke here. Long friend Megan Largy to come have a deep, long, difficult, uncomfortable, awkward, brave conversation with me. The topic we're going into is addiction. Now, this is definitely one of those entries that I really hope that you get your parents' permission to listen to. I really hope that maybe they'll sit with you and that you'll take a moment to pause, to reflect, to discuss, and ask questions. This is a really real and unfortunate part of life. Megan is a certified Irish dance teacher, but she also works with the most vulnerable community in Vancouver. She has a vast knowledge of all of this type of stuff in this realm, and she's very informative and is definitely the right person for me to reach out to and to talk to about this topic. We really dive deep into what is addiction and uh, the emotions that surround it and the cause of it. We also dive deep into shame and why it's kind of a useless emotion. We also dive into gaslighting and toxic positivity. Then we kind of just ended off with a really nice rapid fire questions that kind of lead into us reminiscing about our old Irish dance days. This is a very powerful, deep conversation that I'm really proud of and I really hope that you enjoy it. <laughs> so, thank you for joining me. Um, thank you. How are you doing? How am I doing? Yeah. Uh, good, good. Um, oh, here it is, all the ums. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't worry. 
life is weird. We're mm-hmm. in a pandemic. We're hitting, I guess this is phase three of the pandemic. I feel like, I feel like I've even lost count of what's I, been happening with I it. I don't even know. Honest. Like, wasn't the first phase like 16 years ago, but also not? That also seems completely correct. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't even know what time is anymore. No, no. Somebody said that at work last night, one of the participants, and... Uh, so they went in, they did their, they went in their booth and she came out and she's like, man, time just like slips away when you're in there. I was like, time is a construct. Like there is no such thing as time anymore. It's just a guess on everybody's part. Absolutely. Well, I just wanted to start off with like one of my earliest memories of you. Cause, uh, I remember telling you this once and I remember what you oh, said, oh um, <laughs> but I'm just going to say it again. Um, I remember being like two or three. And living in Surrey, we were really close neighbors. Mm-hmm. And I remember just having the tantrum, like the first ever real like grumble grump tantrum that I could really remember. And I just didn't want to talk to anyone. I like slammed the door to my room. And a few minutes later, I heard a knock. And I just remember shouting just like, if it's not Megan, then get out. Oh. And then guess who walked through the door? It was you. Oh my gosh. It's very symbolic of what our relationship has been throughout the years like even though when we connect it has been very spaced out that uh whenever say like my mom or i would call or just you know like we need help um it'd usually be you or your mom coming to rescue us like no questions asked just like we're there we're there to help like i remember nashville one of our nationals i was puking and everyone was puking in her room and like no questions asked like we need help and your mom just was right there you were right there we're just like there to support each other so thank you <laughs> that's so sweet my heart oh yeah. that's so sweet I just also want to just start off with um, one question. Just yes. uh, would you be down? Just tell me your story of my life. I mean, <laughs> wherever you want to start, but like, just like Desmond doesn't know who you are, and uh, technically, you are the first non-family member to be a part of this. Oh, that's so exciting! Right? So you know, I'm so honored, Megan Lurgy, right? Okay, Megan Lurgy. So yeah, our families were close. Mm-hmm. We were neighbors. Just yeah. down the street. Uh, so I guess I've known you since birth. Yeah, pretty that right? much. I would say so. Wow. Yeah. How is that possible? Wow. Okay. So yeah, I've known Luke for almost his entire life. We were neighbors for for a while, I think. I remember going over and, and uh, I don't know if you remember this stuff, but I like, remember having block parties, like barbecues in the cul-de-sac. And I actually always felt like very nervous to go to those kinds of events because I didn't, you know, as a child, I, I didn't know the rest of the neighbors, but I was always so comforted by the fact of, oh, but the Benoits are going to be there. And it's going to be right by the Benoit's house. So I always felt like very, very comfortable. I was like, oh, this is the family that I know and I'm really comfortable around. And then you guys moved to New West. Well, we were both Irish dancing. You were Irish dancing. Mm-hmm. And then I started after you. And then you guys moved to New West. It was still the same thing. Like we still saw each other, I think, pretty often yeah, growing like up. Competitions. I remember like I'd see your mom and she'd be like, where's your mom? Yeah, <laughs> like that was the frequent things. Like, where's your mom? Um, and then my mom or your mom would ask my mom, and then I would imagine both of our answers were, uh, like at the bar. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Always that answer. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, 
Um, yeah, so growing up, traveling, we traveled to a few competitions together. We, oh my gosh, my first Worlds, what you were staying with, with Michael and Craig, and then my sister Jordana stayed also with you guys and Michael and Craig. Yes, for uh, like a few days for sure. Yeah, so it's always been like- That was first Worlds. That was my first Worlds. Wow, that was my favorite trip almost of all time was Glasgow. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, not only was it in company of like so many great people, but that was the year I actually recalled at work. You recalled. And I got 12th and, um, just that experience was mind blowing. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. That was a huge moment. I remember that moment. I remember when you told me you recalled, I grabbed you. Yeah. It was so good. It was such an exciting moment because we had spent so long over the years, especially when in our teens, I feel like more so in our teens, of renting a practice space almost weekly, I would say. Yes. It was It was often. We danced together every Friday night at Dublin Crossing. Yes. Raised a lot of money. Oh, yes. I bought a solo dress and a trip to Belfast with that money. Yes. That's amazing. We did that. Most of our life, it started out, I guess, as family, friends, and neighbors, and then really flourished and grew from there as we were both involved and passionate about Irish dancing. So then... You know, you. Uh, I remember you got your TCRG, your teacher's certificate for mm-hmm. Irish dance. And then um, a few years later, you kind of diverged into another path. Tell me about that. Yes, they do not. You wouldn't expect that they would go together. So when I, in 2014, I took my TCRG and obtained my certificate to teach competitive Irish dance. And in 2020, I became a harm reduction worker. So I work on the downtown east side with Vancouver's most vulnerable community. I work primarily at North America's first legal safe injection site called Insight. That's where I primarily work now. It's, it's all under the, the umbrella of the Portland Hotel Society. So they have multiple programs and housing projects. And I've done a little bit of work in a couple other programs. But the main program that I work in is at Insight. So totally different worlds than yeah. Irish dancing. Irish dance is probably the most privileged sport you could do. And you go from that to people who literally have nothing. Absolutely have nothing. Wow. Wow. Gosh. It's a contrast. It's almost like there's a bit of like a, a duality going on in your life where I like what you said, like there's the privileged side of Irish dance to people who have nothing. And like you're, it seems as though you have this push and pull going on of that discovery of what the privileged life is like in comparison to what the homeless and the, the people who don't have a lot what that kind of life is like. And I find there's lots of um, profoundness to that. So that's like, wow, amazing. (laughs) It definitely opens your eyes to kind of whatever is going on in your life. You're having a bad day or things are rough. Mm -hmm. It's still going to be okay. It's nothing like what these people endure every day. I mean, last night, just last night's shift, in one hour, in like less than an hour, we had a bear spray incident. So someone came to the door running and they were bear sprayed and we're trying to help them kind of like get it rinsed out of their eyes and out of their mouth. And then shortly after that, there was what we call an offsite. So it's a, an overdose on the street. So they come run to us and say, you know, somebody's needing help, they've got an overdose. So this is all like in one hour, like, you know, you're really looking at some people's like the worst moment of their life or at least the worst moment of their day or even their week you're in that moment with them and 
it's such a contrast to also as a teacher to be in the moment, uh, like, you know, for these young kids up until that point in their life, often some of their most formative or exciting or, or, or their, their biggest moment of their life, you know, something like dancing at the world's, you know, supporting them through a massive goal that they had. And they're in that moment and they're trying to kind of navigate their way through all of the emotions. So just totally, totally opposite experiences. You have high of highs and you have these low of lows and you are with the people on their very, very lowest. Gosh. Gosh, I have a few experiences working at Starbucks with drugs and addiction myself, but I can't even imagine just how you kind of like stare fear in the face with this job of yours. For me, it's like the purpose of working at Starbucks is just to connect with people and serve them coffee and like try to be the best moment in their day, right? But Mm -hmm. with that also comes dealing with the public and, you know, there's so many different variety of people that exist. So, you know, actually getting familiar with the man who actually set fire to the pier oh I like he would come into my Starbucks (laughs) every night and Mm -hmm. like I at at Starbucks they teach us to like assume the best in everyone so Mm -hmm. the moment he walks in I have to assume the best that he's not going to be doing any drugs in our bathroom right but um you know then he he comes out maybe 20 minutes half an hour later and the the bathroom is humid and it's messy Mm -hmm. and there's soot on the toilet seat and like tinfoil on the ground and it's like what's going on and eventually like I had to grab one of these pieces of tinfoil and like the Starbucks I worked at was really across the street from the New West Police Department and I'd frequently be seeing the the police I'd know them by first name and I pick up a piece of tinfoil and I'm like so what is this? Right. Like, um, so that's that's how people smoke meth. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I'm just like, gosh, okay. So, you know, it, it uh, really opened my eyes to, you know, just seeing who this person was and, you know, realizing like he has this problem and... Yeah, it was it was very um, surreal realizing that this is the guy who was probably just so high out of his mind and didn't realize that he just set fire to one of the most beautiful parks in my city. Mm-hmm. But anyways, I wanted to jump off and because you're more of an expert on this or you're more familiar with this whole topic, I just wanted to ask you, like, what is addiction? And I just, I want to start off with this question by describing, like, the imagery of addiction itself to, to me. When I picture the word addiction, I kind of color it as this, like, sludgy, green, swampy color, but it's also, like, soaked in blood. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I don't think that's a necessarily, like, correct term, but, like, I find that my conditioning and a lot of things that I'm surrounded by, a lot of the words and the stigma is painting addiction in these colors. So I wanted to just ask you, like, what is addiction? <laughs> yeah, I mean, addiction is uh, its a bit of a tricky one to define. Uh, I guess probably the most simple way to color it would be a, a habit that becomes all-consuming. And with substances, you are getting, I mean, on a chemical level, you're, you're getting more of like a, a dopamine response. And so there is that addiction or attraction to receiving that response like in your brain more and more often. We color addiction with substance use so easily. And there's a lot of stigma with that. However, there are so many things that can be addiction. Mm. You know, there's addiction to, actually, I was just reading this earlier. Uh, I wish I had my book here. 
Uh, you have addiction to your substances. You have, you know, drugs, alcohol. You also have addiction to behavior, gambling. That's its own umbrella. You recently, I think they kind of threw in video games in there as well. It's like that, you know, those are really addictive. I would say social media, it's very addictive. I'm totally addicted to social media and I hate it. Like I hate, I'm like, why am I still scrolling? I don't care about any of this. And then another like 25 minutes goes by. I'm like, I'm still on here? Like, what am I doing? <laughs> I hate it, but I just, I have such a hard time stopping. And, you know, alcohol, drugs, uh, shopping can be an addiction. Sex is an addiction, like, or not, it can be an addiction. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just that, that rapid fire release of, of dopamine in many cases. Mm -hmm. And it just, that habit that just becomes all consuming, you need to do it. You need to fulfill that need. When it comes down to substances, again, into a, a bit of a trickier one as well with, with trauma. And then you get into a trickier realm when it also comes down to withdrawals. So I would say trauma is, is kind of the main basis of addiction especially with, with substance use. And we know that there are 10 adverse childhood experiences that the more of them you have, the higher risk you have for things like risky behavior would be like drug use or unsafe sexual practices. So we have those links. You know, a lot of people think addiction is just a choice. You know, you wake up one day and be like, hey, I just want to like smoke some meth today. I'm like, that's not really a thing. And I mean, maybe, maybe some people have done that. I wouldn't imagine it's, you know, common, uh, but it is pain management. Mm. The people that I work with, you wouldn't believe the things that they have gone through in their life. I, I do believe that it's about 98% of the people in the downtown East side have been sexually abused as a child. Gosh. Wow. Yeah. That's like, that's like everyone. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah. So the stories that I have been told by some participants of, of their life of growing up or even just their life as it is, there's a lot of pain and just it's pain management. Gosh. Something that's going to take away that pain for a little bit. That would be more like more so the psychological side of it. On the more physical realm of it, something like an opioid, so like heroin, and even with heroin, it's not that common anymore. Most people are, are using fentanyl. You know, it's a very, very strong opioid. The withdrawal process of an opioid is unbelievably awful. It's cold sweats, puking, releasing your bowels, vomiting. It is like your body expelling everything from your, from, from your body and just the shaking and, 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 and physical pain. So a lot of people that I've even spoken to, it's just, it's not even so much of wanting to keep the addiction. And that is, that is part of it, you know, keeping with the pain management. But some people are just like, I just don't, I can't go through that withdrawal. And I've seen people in that withdrawal and they are, they are sick. Wow. Oh my gosh. <laughs> wow. I had like a, um, a few other questions, but you kind of just answered them all. Right <laughs> Awesome. Um, you can you can you can ask them if you want me to rephrase or like you yeah. know better for editing or something. <laughs> well, like I was gonna ask like what causes addiction, but you're just saying like it's pain management and trauma. Yeah, the the ten adverse childhood experiences. Now I always forget one, so I'm gonna use my fingers here and count. Okay. Would be physical, sexual, or emotional abuse, emotional or physical neglect, having a parent who's been incarcerated, having a parent or family member who is mentally ill, witnessing violence in your home, divorce, like parents being divorced. And they always get stuck on one. 
That's okay. But uh, I'm sure it'll come back to me. Tell me what you think. But I, I was once told that like you are the sum of the seven people that you surround yourself with. I don't know if that uh, has anything to do with addiction. We could tie it to addiction, but I could imagine your friends just like peer pressure, you know, try this thing, you know, like we're all doing it. Come be a part of our group and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I just remember the other one, oh. uh, having a family member who struggles with addiction. Okay. Yeah. So that would, I would say, yeah, if you're surrounded by pain, you're surrounded by addiction or by abuse, by unstable conditions, you lose all sense of what is healthy and stable and typically normal. And so if you have, I believe it's, it's four out of the 10, your risk of engaging in risky behavior is it just goes up exponentially. And obviously with the more and more that you have, that risk gets higher. So it's, it's a big part for people to understand that people who struggle with addiction, I know that society paints that as like, they're lazy. They just, they chose this. This is what they want for their life. And, and that is what they are painted as Mm -hmm. instead of just humans that are hurting. Wow. Had a rough time. Gosh, I can only imagine that's so difficult. What I wanted to ask you though, now that we've talked about that and gosh, oh, my heart. (laughs) What's a relapse? Okay. Yeah. Just what is it? (laughs) So I did this course on uh, motivational interviewing, which I signed up and had no idea what I was signing up for, if I'm honest. And, and part of this was talking about the change cycle. So somebody who's trying to stop using And part of this change cycle, you're going to hit, we talked about lapses and relapses. So a lapse would be, you know, maybe you haven't used, let's say you haven't used in a year and you know, you have one night, what would be the best? I guess alcohol might be the best example here. So you're an alcoholic, you haven't drank in a year, you have one night, you quote unquote, like slip up, you have a glass of wine maybe two. And, and you're feeling like, oh, what have I done? I've relapsed, you know, have I relapsed? And, and am I, did I just throw everything away? And, and you have a lot of guilt and a lot of shame with it. That is just part of the, the cycle. That's what happens with, with change cycles. So that would be more so a lapse. That's a, you slipped up and you don't want to do that again. Okay. A relapse is you've slipped up and you've decided, no, I'm going to, I'm going to continue with this behavior. Mm. So let's say you, you haven't had a drink in a year, you have a lapse, you have a couple glasses of wine, the next day you're thinking, hey, that was pretty good. Okay, maybe I want to actually keep doing this and I'm going to continue drinking. That's a relapse. Wow. So it almost sounds as though even though relapse is uh, associated with like drugs and addictive behavior, it sounds as though you can also use that term for lifestyle as well, right? Absolutely. Like, I'm just kind of thinking about how I'm trying to like log my food these days and try to like be a little more accountable in that regards. And so often I just like, I I see my notification in my phone and I'm just like, no, it's okay. I'm too busy. And I just kind of like what you described about that figurative person having that two glasses of wine and just feeling awful is the next day I just, I like that word you use, shame. You know, you just, you feel so shamed, like, ah, I should have done it or I shouldn't have done it. You know, it's that Mm. internal monologue that people kind of have of that shame. Is there any other examples that maybe you can think of that's not exactly drug associated that you could maybe relapse in? I, just any any behavior that you were trying to implement or, or change in behavior that you're trying to implement into your life. So 
that could be, you know, if you don't struggle with addiction, you don't struggle with substances, that could be something as simple like what you're saying with logging your food or, or maybe you're trying to get on a better like fitness kick uh-huh. and you're doing well, maybe you're going to the gym, you're doing the thing, maybe five days a week you're going and you're feeling like super good and then, you know, you just need a rest day. So whatever, that's fine. And then that rest day turns into three days and then you're feeling like, oh, you know, now I feel like so lazy, feeling like terrible about it. And then maybe you get back into it or maybe you're just like, you know, this is not my thing. And like, now I haven't been to the gym in six months or whatever it is. It's it's just whatever, whatever change you're trying to implement into your life. And change happens very slowly mm-hmm. and change has slip ups. Right. Nobody just makes a change and they're like, yeah, no. And then I never did that thing again. I mean, I shouldn't say nobody, but it's not a common... It's not as binary as it sounds, right? No, no. This is now making me think about the term failure, almost. Like, it's almost like relapse is synonymous to the term failure. What does the term failure mean to you? Yeah, that's that's an interesting one to put relapse in with failure, because I think that is a lot of the idea around it, which where your shame would stem from. Mm-hmm. And I mean, shame is shame is a useless and destructive emotion. It's, it's totally useless. It's totally destructive. It's not healthy for us. Mm-hmm. We all have it. Shame is, I am a bad person. Mm. It's like owning the behavior, defining- Yeah, defining yourself by it. So useless and destructive. Shame is, I am bad. Well, that's not true. People are not bad. Nobody is inherently bad. We all have shame, but I think we all need to recognize how it's affecting us. Mm -hmm. So failure is a part of life and we're going to fail at so many things, (laughs) so many things. You know, you're going to fail personal goals. You're going to fail relationships. You're going, whether they be romantic or or friendship or, you know, community, you're going to fail school projects. You're going to fail job interviews. There's good. There's so much failure in life, but that's great because how do we ever grow Mm -hmm. without failure? If we just got everything right the first time, A, that's not very interesting. B, we don't become better people. And you know, that it, it affects us, it affects others, and it gives an opportunity to see how did my actions affect somebody else? How did my actions affect myself? What did I like about it? What did I not like about it? And I feel that failure is actually often a time for you to, to kind of like reset and try it again. Yeah, I love that. I was just doing some research and there's this professor from Harvard. Her name is Dr. Sarah Lewis. She wrote this book called The Rise and she talks about failure like almost extensively. And the whole book is pretty much about failure, but it's only really mentioned like once or twice, which is kind of interesting. But she doesn't really subscribe to the word failure. Apparently what she describes is that it was a, it was originally used for um, describing bankruptcy. When you like kind of just run out of money, like you've, you failed in that regards. But she prefers to use a more poetic term called blankness. And blankness is uh, referring more to of the washing away and then the limitlessness that follows. Oh, I love that. Right? It's just, it was so mind-blowing when I first heard that. And it's just, it's so true. But then she kind of goes off into describing that the enemy of blankness is shame. In order to experience that limitlessness, we got to relinquish our shame. Just like, oof, (laughs) you know? That was one of those (laughs) oof moments. Like, hit me. Um, For sure. I 
I was gonna talk about, we um, we kind of started our little connect here talking about the recent documentary that Demi Lovato put out called Dancing with the Devil um, on YouTube. I just wanted to ask, like, what did you take away from that? Like, that was a heavy, deep documentary to just sit down and watch. But yeah, what were your thoughts? Yeah, so I think really important important for her to tell her story. She has a, a huge fan base. I think some people really struggle when, you know, somebody like a celebrity talks about like their struggles. I think some of the general public doesn't have a whole lot of sympathy for or empathy for them because it's like, oh, but you have so much money, you have this, you have all these things that like, you know, you have so much more than other people and like, oh, okay, you had a bad time. Where I think that's just like, it's just garbage. They're, they're humans, all the same valid emotions. I feel like this documentary is kind of where your the privileged uh, perspective of Irish dance kind of meets the harm reduction side as well. It's like right in the middle, there's this documentary where we see someone who is quite privileged in her life, but literally drowning in this mm-hmm. addiction, right? So that's very just interesting. Anyways, keep going. Totally. So I think it is really great, especially with someone with a big fan base, to talk about this, especially for her story, which actually, honestly, is a lot of people's story, the sexual abuse. So she did touch on that, that that was her experience, like multiple times, I think, in her life. And just recognizing that, you know, she is, no matter, I don't care how much money you have and what kind of experiences you've had in your life and you where you've traveled and all this kind of stuff. You can have absolutely everything you could ever dream of in the world. But if you don't have human connection and safety, we all have pain. Mm -hmm. And some of us have extreme pain that we don't know how to even handle it. And if you don't have the tools or the community and support network around you to handle it, you can just get into some just like really, really dark places. And a lot of people do. I mean, we're in this pandemic and I, well, I've noticed it myself, but I don't think I know anyone that is doing well right now. Like, you know, people are, they're, they're doing well enough to get by. But you know, when you're sitting down having those conversations with your friends, everyone is struggling. And so that is such a huge umbrella that we all kind of fell into and not doing all that well, even though we still have all of the basic needs covered. Most of us, I should say, most of us have all of our silver basic needs covered. And we have this amazing technology that, I mean, you and I were, were speaking and looking at each other right now and being able to connect in, in, you know, a virtual way, we could still have opportunity, but it's still hard. It's still really hard for all of us. And that seems so trivial when, when you think about it, you know, how much we have, but we're still having a hard time. And then you look at somebody who either has everything or has absolutely nothing. And then they've had like some major trauma go on in their life and, and really, really personalized trauma. I mean, what we're, what we're going through right now is, is traumatic and it is trauma. And I even totally at the very beginning, like I was drinking so much, like way, way too much. Cause I was like, there's nothing to do. And like, whatever the world's like falling apart. And I was like, I looked at like how much I had been drinking. I was like, Oh no, 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 no. Like this isn't, this is not a thing for you to like get into here. Cause it was just like, I don't know. I don't know how to handle what's going on. I would have a drink every so often. I don't know. I have this weird aversion to hangovers. Like literally like it's the worst experience I had one the day after my birthday and I just wanted to die (laughs) um but I just kind of recall this one time my dad was pouring himself a rum and coke during the beginning of last year and he was just kind of saying like well it's the thing to do it's it's when in Rome right it's everyone's doing it also I can totally see and hear your dad saying that 
right? Like, oh yeah, was, oh, sorry. I, I always kind of go like hyper Canadian when I. You're like not that Canadian, yeah. Oh yeah, sure, sure. Like, I'm just gonna pour myself a rum and coke, and everyone's doing it. Um, but my mom would also have her little happy hours. Yeah, it's that lack of connection. I totally hear you. And it's it's also that fear. I don't know if you felt that fear. The world's ending, like, holy crap, like, what's going on? Just anything to kind of numb that fear and that pain and that, yeah, whew. It was scary. It was scary. No one knew what was going on. It was all seemed totally ridiculous. And all of a sudden, it was just like the world was shutting down. And it just seemed so impossible that that could happen that not only was it businesses and restaurants and restrictions on seeing people and then borders were shutting down all of a sudden it was just like we were just isolated and just like this these tiny bubbles with almost no warning I felt like you know it just it happened so quickly you know we had heard about the virus in in China I feel like I had heard about it for the first time in like January or something and I and I so like ignorantly of me and also you know check my own privilege of oh well that's in China right like and I'm just like so like disgusted with myself that that was my reaction. I had a similar reaction too because I remember the SARS outbreak mm-hmm. that happened and you know it was over before we could even really realize it happened and I'm like well it's probably the same. Totally. It's what I thought like it's it's over there I don't need to worry we're fine but no. <laughs> no. No, but I mean, you know, on the other side of it, just tying this into, you know, addiction and things like that. Well, I mean, I think, I think we saw a lot of people kind of under, maybe having a, a personal understanding of pain management. Yes. A lot of people kind of, you know, turn to something to calm down the stress and, and just the unknown. But this pandemic is how I got this job, basically. Wow. So I had been trying to get into, you know, like, kind of putting my foot in the water, dipping my toe in to try and figure out how can I be involved in in harm reduction. And this pandemic, just like everything just blew up. They needed more people. Oppenheimer Park, they were shutting it down and they were moving to people to more and more temporary shelters and and they needed people. And I had heard from a friend of a friend that, that PHS was hiring and I just thought like, okay, this is my chance. And I, and, and I remember talking to friends and they were like, are you serious? Like you're going to, I know you wanted to do this work, but now you're going to be on the front lines in a pandemic. And <laughs> I was like, I guess so. <laughs> yeah. like, here I go, you know, and even then, like how much the practices have changed because of the pandemic, you know, there was at first, we didn't have to wear masks just if we were going to be coming in close contact with people. And then if there was an overdose, we weren't using oxygen on people. We were only using Narcan, no oxygen. And then that kind of, that practice changed and it, it just has changed so much in, in the year. And now we, we have full PPE on. And if there is an overdose, we have to have our N95 glasses and, um, and we are allowed to use oxygen again. But yeah, it's, it's everything blew up. Yeah. Gosh. Wow. I just wanted to uh, reel back to the documentary with Demi Lovato. Yes. Oh, yes. We got uh, so no, far off the sun. No, hey, let, we need to we need to talk about what we're going through with this pandemic because it's just so real and to hold it in is not helping anyone. So thank you for telling me your story about that. Is uh, oof, you're so brave. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, I was I kind of wanted to quote. Um, his name was Charles Cook. 
I kind of looked up his name and he was the case manager for Demi Lovato. And he went on to say uh, how a lot of people would say, like, how could you do this when someone relapses, right? Um, how could you do this? And he describes that that's coming from a place of someone else wanting you to be okay, right? Versus him holding his heart and saying, oh my gosh, you must have been in so much pain, right? So talk to me about that. Mm -hmm. That is, that was a big moment, mm -hmm. a big moment for a documentary that's so easily accessible to the public to hopefully understand why people use, Yeah, they use because they're in pain. It is so hard to be on the, on the side of supporting someone that you love through addiction. It's so hard because you, you do feel like, please don't do this. Mm -hmm. And this is why I love the harm reduction model of meeting people where they're at, understanding that this is what you're doing at the moment and how can I love and support you mm -hmm. through this. And I mean, what we do at, what we do at Insight and, and with PHS, even just the, the physical side of it of, okay, I understand that you're going to be doing drugs and we're going to give you clean needles. We're going to give you sterilized water. We're going to give you all the things that you need to do it so that you're doing it in the safest manner possible and you're going to do it on our facilities so that if anything goes wrong, you got, I mean, we're in an overdose like crisis, anything goes wrong. You have people here who are going to save you that you're, you are not going to die while you are here. Mm -hmm. And I have been the person, you know, a very, very, very dear, I would consider a sister struggles with addiction. You want the very best for the people that you love. And everybody thinks that they can make better choices for other people, right? You know, being like, oh no, you just have to do this. I'm going to, you know, if you do this, it, things will be better. Mm -hmm. and to support the people that you love that are in, in really hard times. And you don't get to make those choices for them. And I remember getting a text message from her friend saying that she had showed up at her door. She's high, she's drinking, and she's totally relapsed. And I, I just like, it was just so hard, but still you just worry so much about your loved ones. And so I ended up leaving class. I brought an Narcan kit over just in case. And, you know, I, you just have to see them for who they are. Yeah. Wow. And understand that they're going through so much and some people just don't have the, uh, any other tools other than just kind of dealing with the pain in, in the way of a substance. And, and some people also just don't want to deal with the pain in any other way other than a substance as well. And we also have to accept that not everybody wants to be sober. Yeah. Wow. That doesn't make them a bad person no, at that's, all. That's huge. That's, wow. I really like that you said that not everyone wants to be sober. Ooh. See, like that moment really struck a chord with me in the documentary as well. And when you posted that onto your Instagram story, I was like, I need to reach out to Megan. I just need to talk to her. I, I've been doing a little more um, learning as well. There's this doctor, her name is Susan David, and um, she's an emotions researcher. And she has a few TED Talks as well. She did this exercise that I heard about, very easy. And I'll use the pandemic as like an example for me. What she's asked is, you know, write down your fears or just list out your fears, right? So like for the pandemic for me is like, um, like we were describing, like I'm currently, I'm, frustrated, I'm confused, I'm in pain, I'm 
like sad, I'm lonely, I'm feeling disconnected, right? Mm -hmm. And there's so much importance in feeling those things though too. What she goes on to describe is like, a lot of people they'll ask you to flip over the page and then start listing the things that you're grateful for. This is toxic positivity, is what mm-hmm. she goes on to describe. It called me out because I am so guilty of being this person for people around me. And it called me out and I just, I totally, bleh, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> She said is that when you ask people to be more grateful, what you're really telling them is that my comfort level is more important than your reality. Absolutely. I just had to stand there and like hold my heart and be like, oh, (laughs) you know? Um, Absolutely. It is a very tough thing to hold space for another person in a time of need. It's so easy to celebrate a person, mm-hmm. celebrate something that's very exciting in their life. You know, maybe that's a, a new job, a, like, you know, a promotion, a baby, a marriage, or whatever it is. It's very, very easy to show up. You got flowers, you got champagne, whatever. Yeah, let's celebrate. Let's have a good time. It's really hard to hold somebody's hand in a, a dark moment yeah. and hold and give them space, hold space for them, letting them know that you're there and because you're there, it's gonna be okay, even though it's not okay. And it's also, I just think like, why isn't it more accepted that we're not always okay? I know. And that's normal, that's totally valid. You know, I've had friends, conversation with friends, especially during this last year, where they're, they're themselves, they're beating themselves up for having a hard time. And I'm sitting here being like, yeah, no, that's valid. I would be having a hard time too, going through what you're going through. Mm-hmm. I would also be feeling like this. I, yeah, it's okay to be sad and frustrated and confused and angry and scared and anxious and all the things. Those are all valid emotions. So why would we ever just steamroll over them and just to be like, but other people could have it worse. Yeah. Well, yeah, other people do have it worse, but I'm not doing well right now. (laughs) Like that's somebody else's experience. This is my experience and my experience needs to be validated. Yes. No, I, it, brings forth the term gaslighting, which means to essentially deny someone their reality. I think I wrote down the definition somewhere. To manipulate by psychological means into questioning someone's own reality, mm-hmm. right? And oh, it's it's huge and it's, it's a form of abuse. Yes, it uh, is. Emotional abuse. I felt so called out when Susan David told me about this because I realized that I'm doing this to myself so frequently. And so it, it's a it's very hard place to sit at to realize that I am abusing myself. Mm-hmm. Gosh, no, I just, I really love what you're saying about being willing to sit with someone in their pain and in their darkness. I always find that we don't always have to have the answer. It takes so much to recognize your own darkness, set it aside somewhere for a moment and sit with someone in theirs. Uh, you were saying uh, something about like, meet them where they're at. Like, I, I love that simple yet effective saying, like meet them where they're at. Like they're, they're not, um... oh my God, your mug says meet where they're at. <laughs> it's so good. Um, 
That's so hilarious. Mine's just Starbucks. <laughs> okay, well, that's fair. Yeah, this one's like, like me, people where they're at, and then it's like a little vial of Narcan, and then flowers growing out of the vial of Narcan. Oh, that's so beautiful. I think I, I just, it's, it was said to me during our orientation, mm-hmm. meeting people where they're at and not at the expectation that you have for them. Now, and that was just like mind blowing to me. Now, my question is, is what if you can't meet someone where they're at? Like you- In your own emotional capacity? Yeah, like I, like, like I, going back to that uh, saying of like setting aside your own darkness, like what if I'm not in a space right now where I can set aside my own darkness, right? But I still want to be supportive, right? I think that is partially meeting someone where you're, where they're at. Meeting someone where they're at, wherever they are in their life, is just recognizing and, and validating their own experience. Um, we as humans don't have an unlimited capacity to support and some have greater capacity, some have, have smaller capacities, and that's all totally fine. The main thing is it's not unlimited. And we cannot give space and give support if we're not looking after ourselves as well. I kind of think that like looking after yourself as well is part of meeting people where they're at so that if you're looking after yourself, kind of filling up your own cup, then you're able to give from your cup. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that timing is not going to always work out where, you know, you're, you're feeling you can give enough to somebody to, to support them in their time of need. I think a lot of people feel like if they don't have that emotional capacity in that time or mental capacity, even in that time, they feel like going back to failure, they fail the person or, you know, like that they've let somebody down. And there's just so many other ways that you can still support and love a human without actually being right there with them. You know, a great way is a young girl came up to me, she called me one night and was like hysterical. She was in a really abusive relationship with her boyfriend and it was, it, there was just, there was a lot. There was a lot. I have some tools to help somebody through a situation like that, but I am not a counselor and I do not, ha- I do not have all of the tools. So I can do my best at that time. And then I reached out to, well, the, who do I know? who have the tools. So I reached out to a couple counselor friends of mine. Where can I provide this girl resources? You know, and then I got some resources for her and I, and I sent it to her. And I mean, that's a bit of an, obviously an extreme situation. Sometimes you just have a friend who's just like maybe a bit of a Debbie Downer and you're just like a bit done with it. I have a friend who's like that. And, you know, trying to put that bound, I had to put a boundary for myself because I felt myself just getting totally drained. And if I'm totally drained, then how can I actually even be that helpful of a person? to somebody who does need it. So putting those boundaries where you can look after yourself and you can do those small check-ins if you're able to, you know, smaller check-ins still shows that you're still thinking about that person, even if it's not the big check-in where you're really like in it with them that moment. And this is why community is so important and connection. I think that's why we've had such a hard time during this pandemic is because we have a lack of that community and connection. And, you know, for a lot of people, you might have more than one person that you can go to. I would hope, I would, I hope that everybody does have more than one person. It's not everybody's case, but I hope that people have or feel that they have multiple people in their lives so that kind of can be like a bit more spread out when we need that help. But meeting people where they're at of like, listen, I get you're in this spot Mm -hmm. and, or you're choosing to do these things or whatever it is that I'm meeting you where, whatever spot I'm meeting you in, I'm going to love you. And I might not be here 
to like hold your hand through it, but that doesn't mean I don't love you. Yeah, it sounds as if boundaries are paramount to creating a healthy support system. When you do love someone with a mental illness or, or an addiction, we don't share the same way of thinking. Mm. And it's hard to get on their level. It's hard for them to get on our level. I mean, it's, it's hard to do that with anybody, really. Just like human to human, it's really hard to be on anybody else's level other than your own and to be able to see somebody or see what they see. Mm-hmm. Uh, that in itself takes a lot of work. And then you add something else like a mental illness or an addiction and it becomes really hard because you do love that person mm-hmm. and you want to be there for them mm-hmm. and you don't want to feel like you're abandoning them. But by putting those boundaries, boundaries are often there to really, they end up helping that person by creating a boundary and it, and it might feel terrible for you, but then it just becomes more opportunity for them to maybe connect with people that can help that have the tools that have professional tools and that aren't as close mm-hmm. you know it's really hard to do it when it, when it's when there's a personal relationship mm-hmm. and not always even possible to do when there is a personal relationship sometimes it does need to have that kind of one step removed to be you know a professional type of relationship with people who have the background to be able to support those kind of moments there's so there's so much gray area right totally Ah, well, um, I was wondering, did you want to do a little rapid fire questions? Ooh, okay. <laughs> um, I might be kind of making up some questions as I cool. go. Number one, vulnerability is fill in the blank. Who you are Ooh. at the core of you. Who are you? Mm, I love that. So you're the one who has to act, but it's a very scary thing that you have to act upon. What do you do? I run toward it. Ooh, wow. It's scary. It's so scary. (laughs) (laughs) And I run toward it because I feel that I I just have to. I just have to, is someone else going to do it? Then I'll do it. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah, for me. It's scary though. I feel like I do something similar, but I count back from five before I do it. That's really good. Four, three, two. And then sometimes what happens is like, nope. And then like I go (laughs) myself and then I'm like, five, I start again, four, three, two, one. And then I just do it. You know, like that's probably a better practice. If I'm honest, I just, I feel like I go like head first in and then I find myself being like, Oh, how am I the person doing this? What did I get myself into? (laughs) What was the last TV show or movie that you watched or binged? I feel like I should know this because I'm like always have TV going, but I am a serial rewatcher. Oh yes. I just like, there's like four TV shows that I watch over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. Um, New girl is one. Love it. Uh, Schitt's Creek is another. Um, Oh, modern family was one I recently did. Yeah. I think new girl was the last one that I did though. Okay. It's a shame that like the office is now away from Canadian Netflix, but Mm -hmm. a lot of people use that show as like their background noise. Um, I did all the time. (laughs) Right? Um, For me though, it was Avatar The Last Airbender. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but like, oh, I love that show. (laughs) But I'm actually, LOL, I'm watching Criminal Minds because it's on Disney Plus. Weird. I know. I know. platform. Um, it's, I, I don't know. It's one of those, like, ooh, what's going to happen next? Like, uh, 
Um, what was the latest album or song that you listened to? So I'm such a music lover. This one is like kind of, I guess, kind of funny. Uh, you know what? I actually don't even know the artist, but I'm going to pull it up. Uh, this song called Serotonin. Oh. By Girl in Red. It's just kind of like a, a song is just like, I'm running low on serotonin. And I just feel like, yep. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> about right. <laughs> Also, album-wise, like, like the last album I was, like, obsessed with was Machine Gun Kelly's new album, Bloody Valentine, I think that's okay. No, no, Tickets to My Downfall. Man, it's good. It is really good. Talk wow. about an album of, like, running low on serotonin, but also addiction. Who is your favorite superhero? Oh, my gosh. I, do I know a superhero? What, like, wow. I mean, it doesn't have to be a typical superhero. I, I want to say there's, like... I want to say there's so many I can choose from, but the only one I can think of is Spider-Man. Nice. <laughs> Which is like pretty ironic because I absolutely hate and am terrified of spiders. But I don't know why that's the, the first one that I'm like, yeah, probably Spider-Man. <laughs> yeah. Well, I find him so just charming and he's always like making jokes while he's like fighting people. Totally. It's just like, you know, just like average. I guess they're all kind of just average guys living a dual life. And, you know, like swinging around the city. I don't know, you can get places faster. <laughs> it seems like pretty good. Totally. And uh, maybe I'll just end it off. Like, what was your favorite Irish dance memory? Oh my gosh. How do you pick one? I know, I have one that really stands out in my mind. Um, okay, what's yours? Maybe that'll give me help with mine. <laughs> it was at the Glasgow Worlds, and I was just walking onto stage to dance my reel. And, you know, like, I don't know if you've ever related to this, but, like, there's always that, like, first dance jitters when you're at a major, where it's like, oh my gosh, I gotta go out, do my hornpipe, or do my travel jig. And, like, every, first time dancing on that stage, and there's just, like, that, like, intense nervous energy but then once you finally finished you're just like well that was easy I can do my reel like or slip jig or like whatever you're about to do and I just got over that first dance jitters and I was just like really feeling it I was just like yes stepped onto that stage and you know the reel music goes and I'm pointing my toe and like my my dance starts off with like a cut right mm -hmm. like cut one one two three four up click down oh my god um, I even remember that <laughs> I, I remember that step. That's so awesome. I remember that step. I remember um but, Tracy Captains too. Oh, that was that was my set at that world. <laughs> um I just remember screw it. I'm gonna do a double cut. I'm not gonna do one, I'm gonna do two cuts. <laughs> and that's just like the like it was almost like this audacity to just like I'm gonna do more than what's expected of me, right? Right. And I just like double cut, one, two, three, four, up, click, down. And I just remember that like round click thing that I did. Like I almost hit my nose with my knee. I kicked so hard. I felt this like wind in my uh, hair. And I swear I could have almost heard someone in the audience just go like, ooh, the moment I did it. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. literally probably not even a second of my whole life. But that was probably my favorite moment in Irish dance. Oh, that's so like... It's powerful. I'm right. like, what, what are my favorite moments? I don't even know anymore. Like, I, like, maybe, I don't know. There is no feeling like stepping onto that world stage. Yeah. Like, do you know the moment where you're like, okay, they played the 16 bar 
the intro practice well like you know the practice before the competition starts they play like 16 bars of the music like oh yeah and then when that stops and then like what's his name dan armstrong so i was just like all right we got the first couple competitors on the stage and you're just like oh my god it started we're, we're doing this now we're doing it i've been like doing waiting all year and like now is the moment and then like stepping out and it's like the bright lights and the, the on the marley on the stage and you're just having this moment of like being like so focused and also it's now and also there's how did i get here and also it's why me i felt like that was a big one that i had dancing of like how did i get here like why was it me that got into irish dancing somehow and then got to the level where i'm going to the world and like now i'm on this stage like it was a bit like existential like <laughs> Do you know? Good word. Um, I had that moment a lot. Wow. A lot dancing. And and I think, I don't know, I guess maybe in my competitive career, I guess maybe winning the Aroctus was probably. Oh, I remember that. A good one. I just, I feel like I, that had been a goal. I, I remember you were talking about this, but like um, sometimes when they would give the girls their medals, it would like sit awkwardly on their wig. <laughs> Yes. And you're just like, I don't want that weird metal wig hair. I don't want it. I don't. Want it. There's all the pictures of you, like you're crying, but there it is. The weird. There it is. The weird metal. Because my wig was like massive. Huge. It was so big, and like, yeah, no, that 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 metal's around that way. I mean, now, like, even as a teacher, like when we do awards, I'm like, I'm not putting your metal around your head. Like, here, I'm gonna hand it to you. You yeah. want it around your neck. You deal with the wig thing. Yeah. <laughs> Like, so I, will, I will give it to you. But honestly, if, I, if I'm honest, like, I think my best moments of Irish dancing have been as a teacher. Wow, that's so cool. Yeah, Megan, thank you so much for sitting down and talking to me. We... It was so great. So, like, the flow was so good. Yeah, thank you. Um, but, like, I know this was a heavy topic, Desmond, to listen in on. I hope um, mom and dad were with you during this. And if you have any more questions, just always reach out and... Yeah, I love you, Desmond. I can't wait to meet you. I I love maybe one day Megan and I could dance for you, um, like we used to do our two hands. Two hand. Um and yeah. Anyways, um, have a good day. <laughs>